So the series we're in is called Starting Point, and what I like about this series is we're not assuming anything. Like sometimes when you walk into a church, and even this church, it's, it's kind of assumed that you kind of have a foundation already of, of what we teach and believe. In Starting Point, we're saying, what, it would, what, what would it look like if an adult were to consider the starting point of their faith in adulthood? It's a blank slate uh, without anything that they've learned from childhood. What would you need to do? What would you need to ask? What would you need to figure out? And in this series, we're looking at what those questions would be and what they need to figure out. So what I've liked is we've already handled some really uh, cool stuff in this series in weeks one through three. We've looked at what it means that this is such a big universe. Just the vastness of it is overkill if it's just for us. But the Bible says that it's not just about us. The vastness of this universe preaches a message that God is great. We are small, yet we are not insignificant to him. In week two was the foundation of the Christian faith. We got it out there right away. Because if Jesus did not raise, was not raised from the dead, then we might as well close the church and go home. Uh, but we talked about the historical, both biblical and outside of the Bible, all the, all the facts and all the histories that point to one idea that Jesus didn't, didn't in fact die and come back from the dead. And then last week we talked about the Bible, what it is, where it came from, why we point to it and say this is the word of God, not the word of men. And um, if, if those are, any of those questions or issues are still kind of bothering you on the inside, feel free to go online and check out those messages on our website, either listen to them or watch them. What we're doing today is we're taking those first three weeks and we're making a huge, huge application of those three things. Because it's easy to say, yeah, the universe is big, God is great. It's pretty easy to say, okay, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and okay, the Bible is God's word. But when you put those things together, there's going to be some, some things that don't mesh with what this world says. And perhaps the biggest one is in, with regard to the whole deal with creation and evolution. I'm going to draw out that tension just a little bit for you. How does a 21st century Christian, how do they account for all the things that evolution and science throw, at, throw out at you? Or maybe to back up, can a person in the 21st century still look at a six-day creation as viable, as a good option, as, as matching with what we see around us? Because science and evolution and Big Bang, they, they all seem to go against that. Now, two quick disclaimers before I go any deeper. Disclaimer number one, what's the title before my name? Pastor. Not doctor, not scientist. Does, is scientist a title? They probably have something after their name, like a bunch of letters or something. I'm a pastor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a mathematician. In fact, so far in all three services, the previous services, I totally messed up a, a math thing, and I'll tell you what it is. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a scientist. What I'm doing is I'm making observations based on what I can see and what I can confidently tell you. So while a lot of the evolution stuff we talk about today is kind of surface issues, we're not getting too deep, I'm just going to share with you what I can share because I'm not that smart about evolution stuff. The other disclaimer is I appreciate that here at Bethlehem, we have all sorts of people from all different backgrounds who are trying to take steps to learn about God and learn about Jesus. And so I appreciate we have people here who are very much saying, yes, God created things in six days, and they're creationists. The earth is 6,000 years old. And I also appreciate the fact that we have people who are kind of in the camp where I believe that evolution is how we got here and that maybe God used it somehow, and you're still trying to figure that out. 
See, I'm not trying to make one person right and one person wrong. What I want to do is create a path so that a 21st century person can address these issues in a wise way so that you can see from a blank slate the issues that need to be figured out. So here's how the issue usually goes. So you got creationists, you got evolutionists on both sides, and here's how the, the, the debate usually goes. Uh, usually you have something like this. Well, this is just a facts versus a faith issue. One side is for the, the facts, and one side is for faith, and you can't have the two come together at all. In fact, this is a few years ago, I know, but did any of you watch that debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham, the creationist? It's like two and a half hours long, so if you missed it, I don't blame you. But they had this big debate, creation versus evolution, and, and there's this big debate going back and forth, and it almost always came back to this. Is it fact or is it faith? I want to put you in the shoes of both people so that you can just see going into this as a starting point, just so you can see what's going on here. So the creationist will look at the evolutionist and think what? If I had an evolutionist standing up here in front of you today and they said the world came here 14 billion years and everything is by chance, there is no God, what would you think of that person? We would not hand out cabbage and lettuce as you walked into the sanctuary. I would just say that. We would, no tomatoes, no throwing of anything at that person. Maybe Chris, well, that person's just the devil. Or that person is nasty. They're just going out against God and this is not right. And so you'd throw your southern accent in there because you're a whatever... Here's how we would maybe view that person. Let's go to the next slide here. We would say evolutionists focus on facts so much that they deny the faith. Anything that requires faith, they would cut it off and say only the facts. Now look at it from the other perspective. Let's say you're the evolutionist and you're looking at that Christian over there. What do you think about them as they staunchly hold on to this six-day creation account? It would be the opposite for them. That You look at creationists, and creationists focus on faith so much that they just deny the facts. Christians plug their ears. They cover their eyes. They don't want to see anything that might conflict with their faith. And so th this is especially what you see in the Nye versus Ham debate. Uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, is so worried about our future because he thinks that creation account will make people blind to science and blind to data. So facts versus faith. But actually, this isn't about facts versus faith at all. This issue is about faith versus faith. Because I think we get the word faith kind of mixed up. And here's the another, I'm full of disclaimers today. The other disclaimer is that in a few weeks we'll talk about the biblical context of faith, what faith is from the Bible and what the Bible says about um, faith when it comes to God. The kind of faith we're talking about today is more the general faith about how the world views it, what it means to have faith in something or about something. So fill in number one on your sheets. We'll get to the heart and core of that. Faith isn't belief in what cannot be proven. I'm going to pause there because it's a lot of negatives. Faith isn't a belief in what can't be proven. I'm going to prove this to you. When you read the Bible, if the Bible was all about this, about believing something that can't be proven, the Bible would be one page long. And it would go something like this. Things were great. Mankind messed it up. God promised to fix it by sending a Savior. That Savior was Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for you. 
Believe in him for eternal life. And oh, by the way, show your love for God by loving God and loving your neighbor. The end. If the Bible was all about just believing something you can't prove, it would be exceptionally short. But when you look at the Bible, there is all these details in there. And in fact, when you look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the people who wrote them flat out say, we're writing this down so that you can see the evidence, so you can see the proof in order that you may believe. So faith isn't about believing something you can't prove. Here's what faith really is. It's belief in what you cannot see. There's a difference there. There's a big difference. If we couldn't prove our faith, there would be no church. If there was no proof that Jesus rose from the dead, there would be no Christianity. Faith, in its essence, is about having proof of something but, the, but at the same time, the essence of it is you're believing in something that cannot be seen. So let me flesh out a little bit why this isn't a faith versus a facts thing. As you look at, our, at the world around us, at the universe around us, and especially about our life on planet Earth, scientists have identified over 150 elements or forces that are keeping us alive right now. And of all the 150 things, picture a soundboard with all these different things on these. Like, Danny, how many things are on our soundboard? Like, how many rows? 60? Okay, and each one of them can be finely tuned in different ways, so easily 150 different settings on the soundboard. And by the way, can you just set them and be done with it? Like, cement it in stone? No, we have to continually set the sound levels, and that's what makes it so frustrating, right? Anyway, you look at this, the 150 things on a soundboard where you have to get them just right, and all of them have to be just right. If you move any one of them, life is not possible. I'll give you a few examples here. Finely tuned, wasn't that cool? Finely tuned for life. There's 150 forces and elements. One of them is this, that if the earth was any different distance from the sun, first one up here, there it is, position of the earth and sun. If the earth and sun were any different, this is an easy one, I'll go quick. Too close to sun, ouch, this is hot, we can't live. Too far from sun, too cold. We're finely tuned with relation to the position we are from the sun. Here's another example, then I'll tell you why we're, we're doing this. Strength of Earth's gravity. Did you know that if the Earth ate billions of donuts, it would gain weight? We're still in January, so we can use New Year resolution stuff. If Earth gained weight, it would also have a stronger gravitational pull. And do you know what would happen if that happened? Toxic gases from the upper atmosphere would be sucked down towards Earth where we would breathe them and die. If the Earth went the opposite, if we lost some weight, the gravitational pull wouldn't be so hard, and what would happen is the water vapor that makes our air breathable would get dispersed into the upper atmosphere and we would die. So this is a finely tuned force that keeps us alive. One last example, the proximity of the moon to the earth. The moon's proximity dictates how fast we rotate on our axis as the earth. Um, and if that gets messed up, if we go too fast, we start getting 1,000-mile-an-hour winds like happens on Jupiter. If we go too slowly, one side gets baked in the sun while the other side freezes. Both of those mean no life on earth. So these plus 150 other Forces or elements are what's keeping this creation finely tuned in, this, in, in what we know as the sphere of life. So one more here. Okay, so there, 150 more. Now here's the question. To get all 150 perfectly lined up, 
by chance, in 14 billion years, which is what evolutionists are saying, what are the odds of that happening? Next slide. What are the odds? One in, what would you say? To have 150 forces and elements just by chance get finely tuned all by themselves so that life is possible, what are the chances? One in a million? One in a trillion? I just heard a made-up word. That's pretty accurate. And this is where I messed up in the first three services. Let's see if I can get it right. So the odds are one in 10 to the 70th power that all of these finely tuned elements and forces would be just, just right. In the previous services, I said one in one to the 70th power, which is one. (laughs) And that's not right. So I'm not a mathematician. I'm a pastor. One in 10 to the 70th power are the odds of all these things just falling into place by chance. Nice. And that's just a huge number. We can't even figure that, right? Um, when was it? A week ago, two weeks ago? What was the Powerball at? Oh. Rose up to 1.3 billion, and then it crept up even further. I think it was 1.5 billion at the end, right? The, uh, some people want it. Anyway, some of you are like, yep, I know. I, been there. Now, here's the other question. What are the odds of you, if you played a single ticket on the Powerball, what are the odds that you're going to win it? I've heard 273 million. I also found a reliable source that said 290 million. Let's put it up here. Again, I didn't work out the math. I depend on other people. Those are the chances of you winning a Powerball ticket. And some of you are like, I know. That's why I bought two. (laughs) Nobody here won. What does this show you? Now, here's, here's maybe another stat to throw at you. To put this in perspective, 1 in 10 to the 70th power, the chances that this would be finely tuned. That would be like winning the, 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 the Powerball over 200 million times back to back to back to back. That's 1 in 10 to the 70th power. So are we talking facts? Or are we talking faith? This isn't about facts versus faith. As, uh, if you're entering your starting point as an adult, you look at creation, you look at evolution, it's not like one is based on facts and one is based on faith. They're both depending on faith. Now what I want to do is I want to make a bold statement for fill in number two, and then I want to show you why I believe this so fervently. So fill in number two, science does not conflict with the creation account. Or maybe we should restate that. The the, the evidence, the data, the raw data that comes from science does not contradict the creation account. I say that with confidence. And as as I play that out, as I look at how it applies to all the findings and stuff, it works. I want to show you how in just a second. Science does not conflict with the creation account. Science, real science, honest science, gives us hints into how God did it, how it happened. Now, here's here's why I'm at this starting point. It's because of week number two, where Jesus Christ predicted his own death and came back to life. He pointed to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and he said, Have you not read what happened? 
In the beginning, God created male and female. And then he sent out his apostles who did the same thing. Have you not read what happened in the beginning? This was not a myth. This was not a fable. But the man who defeated death pointed back to Genesis 1, and he said, this is what happened. And as I play this out, this is a theory that needs to be tested. As we play this out, you're going to see that scientific data on its own does not contradict the creation account. It simply gives us hints. Not an overall picture, not a detailed picture, but it gives us hints, an echo of how it happened. So we're going to throw up Genesis chapter 1. I wish we could go through the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 1. I want you to go home and read it this week because it's great. We're just going to hit a few highlights here that make this argument stand out. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is so cool because the very first verse of the first chapter of the Bible is that split second when God from eternity, without time, without space, that moment, that second when he created space and time and matter and energy, and he created it. In the beginning, that moment, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, as, as I read through Genesis 1, it's amazing. It's almost as if when God gave these words to Moses thousands of years ago, it's, it's like God could see in the future and know the things that we're wrestling with today because there's so many details here that help us figure out the faith and facts thing. The next part's important. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So what that tells me is that God created everything, but he didn't make it a completed uh, model yet. That he created all the elements, he put all the time, the matter, the energy, everything there, and then he needed to form it and create it to the way he wanted it to be. Now, I'll use a quick illustration from my season in life. My kids have Legos. Like every Christmas, every birthday, they get a new little set of Legos. And of course, they build them once, and then what happens, unless you're like a crazy dad with super glue, you put them into a big bin with all the other Legos. And so we had this huge bin of Legos. And now I can tell whenever my kids play with Legos. You know how? That's the after effect, yes. <laughs> the way I can tell is that they don't just pick things out and start you know, building them here and there. They take the entire bin and dump the whole thing out, spread it all out, and I'm just thinking, you're going to pick that up, right? They dump the whole thing out. Now, in the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. He put all the matter, all the energy there. He spread it out. He put it into its general place, and then he started to create. Now, what does science tell us about the beginning? What does the Big Bang model demonstrate for us based on observation, based on details that they found? I'm going to rely on the mighty Wikipedia here. In the Big Bang model, this was referenced, by the way, so I, I, don't, I know not everything on the Internet is true, but this one is. In the Big Bang model for the formation of the universe, inflationary cosmology predicts that after about 10 to the negative 37th seconds, I'll explain that in a second, the nascent universe underwent exponential growth. Do you know what 10 to the negative 37th seconds means? It means here's the second, the beginning of a second and the end of a second. 10 to the negative 37th seconds is like this. Like the split second after the split second, everything began. There was exponential growth. Do you know what that exponential growth looks like? 
It looks like all the matter, all the energy is just plopped down in the same spot and then <laughs> sent to where it needs to go. You see, as I look at what science demonstrates, I don't see it contradicting with what the Bible says. I see it giving us little hints into what those first moments of creation must have looked like when an almighty God steps out of eternity to create space and time and matter. And I love this last part here. Did you catch that? Underwent exponential growth that sm- smoothed out nearly all inhomogeneities. I don't know what inhomogeneities are, but I'm glad they're smoothed out for us today. All taken care of. So I don't see that science contradicts the creation account. I see it giving us hints as to how it looked, what it looked like, how God did it in the beginning. Now, the timetable, yeah, different. (laughs) Because when you have an almighty God spreading things out and then holding them in place, things will get off when you look at timelines. Um, We're going to go on here. Verse 3. God said, this is day three, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, people have said, well, wait, how did this happen? Because God hasn't created the sun or the stars yet, so how can there be light? Something I sometimes say, if God says there's light, there's going to be light. So that's one answer. The other answer, which I tend to gravitate towards, is that when God said, let there be light, he was setting up the possibility for light. He was setting up the laws and rules by which visible and invisible light would operate in this world. And you science nerds are like going, this is awesome. You know, invisible light is governed in certain ways. Visible light has its parameters. In this first word, God is establishing how this creation works. Let there be light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning the first day. So you're saying that God didn't use like an eon to do this? That it only took a day? I mean, it's almost like God thousands of years ago knew that we would be wondering, it seems like this should have taken a longer time. And God said, no, there was evening, there was morning, there was a cycle of darkness and a cycle of light, that's all. One day, and this was done. And for six days, he goes on. We're going to skip ahead to day three to see something else. God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants. This is so cool. God created things with the ability to reproduce itself. Even today, you look at a seed. How did God put that power in there? I don't know. It's pretty amazing. God created seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. This is important. Each according to their various kinds. According to their kinds. Same with animals. God created the animals. Same with the fish. God created the fish. Same with the birds. God created the the birds. Each according to its kind. What does that tell you? It tells you that when God designed things, he set parameters on them. That while this this animal, whatever it is, that it has an ability to adjust to its its environment and change in, in ways here and there, God set the parameters at creation about what that animal was able to do. So is is evolution an option with God? No. He set the parameters during creation that each would be created according to its kind and would reproduce according to its kind. And I'll bring out a quick objection. Well, what about the fossil records or what about all the different animals that seem to just gradually step from one step to another to another to another and and were filled with this evolutionary data? I want you to set that aside for now and just picture for yourself what would it look like if 
and all intelligent God were designing things, would he not have the perfect ideal model of what sustainable life looks like rather than a bunch of different pieces like he's trying to experiment, well, what works good here, what works good there? Wouldn't there be just a basic imprint of what life takes to work and then apply it across the scale? Just like a painter paints many different paintings, yet you can see his mark in all of them, his style in all of them. God created so many different things with his intelligent design behind all of them. The only exception is the duck-billed platypus. I haven't figured that one out yet. (laughs) Sorry. He created each thing according to its kind, according to its kind, and it was so. Um, Last section here. Skipping all the way to the end, after day six, after God created animals, fish, people, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. He graded himself, and the perfect God gave himself very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, and this is also important, it's not like God set things in motion, then they sort of took care of themselves, but thus the heavens and the earth were completed, finished within a six-day period, and everything was set. I'm going to talk about that more in just a second, but there's one other, one other quick thing. So, so um, science, so evolutionists, they look at this earth, they do their carbon dating on, sto- on minerals and stones and stuff, and they come up with dates, and I don't buy into the accuracy of those. But even if they were true, here's just a thought for you. You can debate this on the way home today. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? If they were born naturally, you got the umbilical cord, right? And that leads to a belly button. Did they have a belly button? And, and the point is this. This is the serious side of the question or side of the issue. God created them not as infants or babies. God created them as adults who were able to reproduce immediately. God created them with age, with maturity. Same thing with the stars in the sky. God created the stars with age because finally the light that needs to arrive at earth would otherwise take millions of years, some, maybe billions of years, But God put them there to give us light, so God created the light between there and here. God created it with age. So when science looks at stuff and it says millions, billions of years, whatever, I think to myself, that's interesting. If it's true, God created this world with age and maturity to to show how great he is. Now we go back to this. So after he was done, everything was very good, but it did not last very long. What many think was a matter of either a matter of hours, matter of days, at the most a matter of weeks. Adam and Eve took what was very good, what was given to them, and they turned it around. You know, those 150 finely tuned things that we talked about, they didn't destroy them all, they didn't you know, mess them all up, but they shook it. Everything in this creation was shaken so that it was no longer perfect, no longer very good. Here's the ironic thing. It wasn't about faith or facts for them. It was about faith and facts. They denied the fact that God loved them and was out for their good, which destroyed their faith in him. 
that led to a disobedience. You look at Genesis 1 through 3, God answers this question too. We ask, well, why is there so much badness? Why, why evil? Why is there suffering and death in this world? And in Genesis 1 through 3, God says, it wasn't me that brought this here. It was mankind who brought it here. As you look at this world, as much as we see amazing things here, here here's a fill in number three. As awesome and amazing as everything is, here's the thing. Today in this world, you've only seen the broken version of it. Which brings us to one final question, or maybe there's two more, I can't remember. I ask a lot of questions. One final question, why did God keep it? Why didn't God destroy it and throw it away and start over from scratch and make something good, and this time without the humans to mess it up? Here's the answer. While we see God, evidence of God in this creation, and while we see his thumbprint in this creation, God is not defined by this creation. He's defined by his love. And out of love, he came up to Adam and Eve. He said, what did you do? Why are you hiding? What's going on here? And when they came clean, he, he didn't say, well, that's it, we're done. He said, there's going to be consequences for what happened here today, but the ultimate consequence will fall on me. I will send an offspring that will fix what you broke today. And what, we, what we're going to do next week, we're going to talk more about that. Why was this God's plan? Why send a son? What does it mean that he sacrificed himself for us. We're going to look into that more closely as we keep walking through this starting point of faith. But this was God's promise to you. Here's the thing. As we look at this broken world around us, that's not the best starting place. And, and granted, we need to take away some obstacles. We need to acknowledge what's the role of evolution and science and what's the role of faith and how do those things combine. And we need to be able to navigate that as we seek our starting point. But here's the thing. The starting point is not about figuring this out. The starting point is somewhere else. And God invites you to go there. This is what he says in, in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, come now, let's reason together. Let's make sense of something together. And you might think, okay, here's where God's going to talk about his awesome universe and how great he is. No. Let's reason together about your sins. Let's look at the source of the brokenness in the world. Let's not try to fix the world. Let's look at what needs to be done here. And here's his promise through Jesus, which he fulfilled. Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is my starting point. I believe in a six-day creation, not because I've seen all the facts and details and I can make sense of it all. If someone were to ask me, what would it take me to change my mind, to go towards evolution and to acknowledge this is all just chance and this is one in 10 to the 70th uh, chances that we, we hit it, what would it take to get me there? It would take one thing. Go back to week two and show me the body of Jesus still dead. But since he's alive, that leads me to view things differently and to see that science doesn't contradict the creation account. It gives us hints into how God did it. 
and we get to see the amazing thumbprint of God. Now, I want to send you off with one real practical thing because some of you, as you take this home with you, you're like, I wish I could recreate all of that for my friend who needs to hear this. Or maybe you can make them go to our website and listen to this in a few days. I don't know. But just for you, I'm going to equip you with one simple question. If someone is just on your case about this whole evolution thing and how you're just by faith, oh, you need to figure this out, how can you be so foolish? Or maybe it's more of a passive thing where someone just sort of mentions Oh, well, isn't it great that we've had billions of years to evolve like this? And you feel like you need to say something in that moment, but you don't know what to say. I encourage you to start with this question. What led you to this view? What led you to this view? Because you're not going to be able to argue them with facts, what they, what they hold on to by faith. What you can do is go back to the start of it, the real starting point, which starts in an empty tomb where God declared victory over your sins for you. As you put all these things together, it's not just this blind matter of faith where you're holding on to things and trying to make them true. This, the empty tomb, the creation account, all of this is a matter of fact. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I know that there is always doubt that resides in me, but I thank you for the utmost certainty through Jesus' death and resurrection, that my life is aligned by what you say. And it's, it's amazing for me, for all of us, to look in this creation and to see the evidence of your greatness and your power. And even in the face of suffering and death, we can see evidence of your grace and that you would send your Son into this world for us. So in times of doubt and in times of wonder and we're trying to make sense of everything, in fact, if someone listening here is still in their starting point of faith and they're trying to take a step forward, let the anchor be what you did 2,000 years ago in a cross and in an empty tomb. Drive us back to that fact, that historical date as the starting point where you made everything new inside of us. Bless everyone here. Bless everyone listening to this message. Hear us now as we also pray the prayer Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll continue by gathering an offering which supports our ministry here at Bethlehem and is also an offering of our first fruits back to God. If you're a guest, what we always impress upon our guests, please don't